So if he says remove the stone, remove the stone. Even if you don't understand why or the purpose behind it, you said you trust him. Now do what he says. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to episode 64 of Working with the Word. As you can see by the title today, our show focuses on Jesus's I am the resurrection and the life. This is Jesus's fifth I am statement in the Gospel of John. And we're also going to talk about his awesome proof of that by raising Lazarus from the dead. This is Jesus's seventh sign in the Gospel. As we've seen in John so far, there is always a connection between what Jesus says, like his I am statements, and what he does, his signs. So we want to remind you to read through or listen through the text yourself and do your own observation before hearing ours that follows. If you want to, you can hear us read it in episode 61, starting at about the 14 and a half minute mark. One of the things that Jeff and I both noticed as we were reading through John 11 together is that, yes, there's a lot to talk about with the sign itself, but there's a lot of buildup to Jesus's sign. And that's where we want to begin today, talking about the situation, the conversations, and Jesus's teaching that led up to Jesus's raising of Lazarus. So our conversation begins in Bethany, which is about two miles east of Jerusalem. There are a couple Bethanies mentioned in the scriptures, but most likely this is the one that's close by to the city of Jerusalem. And there Jesus' friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are all residing. Particularly of note, we see here at the beginning of the chapter that Lazarus is sick. This news comes to Jesus. Upon Jesus hearing this news, he actually waits for two days before he goes to see Lazarus. You can read it, and it's like he is intentionally saying, I want to wait for this time period. You you think of other times when people who have mention of those who are sick, maybe think of like the royal man's servant or the nobleman's son or people have a daughter or whoever. They come to Jesus, and it's kind of like, Jesus, this person is sick, and if they're not with them as they come, it's kind of like, well, you come like right now. I guess there is that case where... There's the man who comes to Jesus, and he says, if you just say the word, it'll happen. But Jesus hears this news of Lazarus, and you think, based on what we see and know of his friendship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that this would be like a, let's go, let's do something about it. We've seen Jesus heal people before, so let's get on top of this. Right. But instead, he intentionally waits those two days so that he can show the glory of God and that he will be glorified through what he's about to do. And so if you're reading this for the very first time, or if you're reading this and trying to think of, if you're putting yourself in that situation, that might seem like a strange thing, but Jesus has a reason for that waiting. And that's going to be kind of challenged a couple of times throughout this chapter by Lazarus' sisters, by the crowd. But Jesus is going to make, like you said, this great proof or show this great sign that's going to back up the glory of God. And so Jesus says to his disciples, hey, Let's go to Judea again, there in verse 7. His disciples were kind of summing up what they say in verse 8 as, um, what? Like, <laughs> do you not remember what happened the last time we were there? If you uh, have a Bible and you're looking at one, you can scroll up or back up to chapter 10, verse 31. They're picking up stones to throw at Jesus, mm-hmm. or they're trying to seize him there in verse 39, but he eludes their grasp. 
And so it probably seems ridiculous to think, let's go back to that place where we're almost killed or almost captured just a moment ago. But Jesus says we need to go, and he tells them, kind of again, Jesus things in Jesus ways. From their statements there in verse 8, don't you know like what just happened? He says in verse 9, aren't there 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. As Jesus is saying these things, it seems like the summary of all of this is the fact that the time to work is now, and as the light of the world is here. Right. And as we've seen that expression used a couple of times since John 8, we're understanding that this is talking about the fact that Jesus is here to do this work here now. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to something Jesus has reiterated over and over again about his hour. And it's mm-hmm. almost like he's saying, um, you know, my hour is is coming closer, and so I need to get busy and doing, I mean, he's always been doing the Lord's work, but the hour is coming when he won't be able to do that any longer, and so now is the time to do that. Right, and as we think about trying to not jump too far ahead with the rest of this episode and what's to come, I mean, this, what he's about to do is really going to move the story of his hour closer. Mm-hmm. It, If we're familiar with the story of John already, and John doesn't necessarily hide things from us, we know that Jesus is going to be crucified. We've seen references to that already, things like that. This sign plays a big part into the leading Mm -hmm. of the last straw of Jesus, and the Jews finally, I mean, they've been plotting to kill Jesus for a while, but they're, it seems, really putting the plan into motion now. Within this statement of verses 9 and 10, there's also this idea of, to walk during the day is to be in line with Jesus or to have fellowship with Jesus. This idea of walking in the light or walking in the light of this world or being with the light of this world is similar to some things that John writes in his first epistle as well in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through verse 7. So then in verse 11, Jesus proclaims that Lazarus has fallen asleep. We don't have any record of anyone coming to Jesus and his disciples and saying that Lazarus has already died. Jesus seems to be aware of this. And as he tells his disciples this, that he's going to go then wake him up, the disciples respond with, hey, you know, that's great. He's getting some rest. If he's sick and if he's not feeling well, now is the time for him to really get some good naps and to start feeling better, give his body some rest. (laughs) Right. But Jesus plainly tells them there in verse 14, no, Lazarus has died. That's a common illusion or metaphor to say someone has fallen asleep in the scriptures. Sometimes it will say in the Kings, they slept with their fathers. Paul uses some of that illustrations in his epistles as well. So all that to say that you know Lazarus has fallen asleep, he's dead, but I'm going to go wake him up. And in fact, he says there in verse 15, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Again, plug John 20, 30 through 31. We're going to plug John 20, 30, and 31 a couple of times, so I'll just leave that there for now. But look at, again, Jesus is about to do something amazing with this sign. Let's go to him. And so before we finish this section with the disciples, we need to notice Thomas. You remember Thomas, probably. We know something about Thomas. We know Thomas as being doubting Thomas. You know? mm-hmm. That's a term that we may hear even out in the world today. And from that, Thomas shows some great faith and courage here as he says, Let's go too, so that we may die with him. I don't think they're talking about Lazarus. I think they're thinking about verse 8 of, hey, if Jesus is going to go back to Judea, and if he's going to get himself you know, captured and killed because he feels the need to go, then let's go with him, and we'll march with Jesus to whatever happens there in the region of Judea. So that leads from his conversation with his disciples to then now getting to Bethany, 
Lazarus has been dead for four days, and mm-hmm. we're going to have some interactions with Lazarus' sisters. Yeah, one of the things that stands out to me as you were talking about the first few conversations there is just how confusing everything is. I mean, Jesus, he, he doesn't go immediately, and he says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And his, his disciples get confused about that. They're getting confused about why Jesus is going back. Thomas says, I'm going to die with him. It's like nobody really seems to get it yet. Nobody really seems to understand what's going on. I think that prepares us for the miracle because the miracle, the sign, is not anything that anybody would expect. I mean, Jesus raises a dead man out of his tomb. And so I think that kind of sets the stage well. So in verse 17, Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. And so when Martha hears that Jesus has arrived, she goes out to him and she meets him before he arrives in the village. And what she says to him is a little bit striking in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I, I don't think that she means any disrespect to Jesus because I think she shows him uh, some, some reverence here and from what other things that she says other places. Um, and she's got a close relationship with the Lord, but she's being fairly bold. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's basically saying... If you had been here, we wouldn't have, you know, we, we wouldn't have to go through this grief or anything. Right. But what's even more surprising is what she says in verse 22, yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, I, I don't know, like, what she exactly means by that. <laughs> yeah. I think she is indicating that she still has some sort of confidence or trust in him. Um, I don't think that she expects him to actually raise Lazarus, because when Jesus comes to the tomb, foreshadowing here, when he comes to the tomb, he says, remove the stone. And Martha's the first one that says, hey, hey, look, Jesus, you don't want to do that. There's yeah, a stench. Right. Uh, he's been dead for four days. And so I don't think she anticipates that, but she is putting her trust in him. Mm-hmm. What ensues after that is this, this really, really important moment in this conversation. Verse 23, Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, Jesus. <laughs> um, she had some sort of sense of that there would be a resurrection in the last day. Mm-hmm. But Jesus digs into that. And in verse 25, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So he takes what she understands about the resurrection, which is true. And he connects that to himself. And he says, look, I am the power that is going to bring about the resurrection on the last day. Right. Jesus has actually anticipated this earlier in the gospel. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, he says, Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the grave will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to a resurrection of life, those who have done wicked things to a resurrection of condemnation. There he's talking about the final resurrection, which Martha has just spoken of. But Jesus wants her to see that it is his power, it is his voice that's going to cause that to happen. And the question is, well, well, how do we know that Jesus really has that power? I mean, that no one can command the dead to come out of the tomb. Right. And so how do we really know that Jesus has that power? Well, Jesus is going to do this miracle to demonstrate that. And so he's talking about Lazarus's physical life that he's about to give him, but he uses that as proof of the claim that he has been making all along to bring eternal life, spiritual life. That's what he means whenever he says, he who believes will live even if he dies. He's really driving home this point about spiritual life, living eternally. And that brings 
this moment in verse 26. He says, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. This is Martha's great confession. I think in a lot of ways, Martha is like Thomas. We typically remember Martha, at least I do, from Luke chapter 10. She's she's the one that's kind of huffy at her sister Mary for <laughs> not helping in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, and so we might think of her as maybe less spiritual than her sister, but it's it's Martha who makes this great confession. She's one of the very few people in the entire Gospel of John and the rest of the rest of the Gospels that makes a great confession like this. I mean, think about Peter, mm-hmm. who made the confession that Jesus was the Christ. He said something like that in earlier in John chapter six: "You are the one who has words of life." Well, Martha's doing something very similar to that. Right. And it's the same kind of confession that we need to make, come to realize, again, plugging the purpose of, of John, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, these things have been written so that you may believe, so that we can come to the point where we say, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And that when we say that, we have life in his name as well. We'll talk more about that towards the end of the episode, but you know, Martha's faith here really stands out. She doesn't understand everything, but she's willing to say, in this moment of great crisis and grief, Jesus, you are who you say you are. And that leads us to the next conversation that Jesus has with Mary. So as Martha comes back from this conversation, like you mentioned, she meets Jesus outside of Bethany. She comes back into town and tells her sister, hey, Jesus is here. I don't know why she didn't let Mary know beforehand. Uh, like I said, there's probably lots of questions, lots of confusion, things we just don't know because it's not recorded for us and maybe isn't important. But Mary goes out to Jesus, and very similar, if you drop down to verse 32, you see Mary speaking to Jesus and saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And within this context, especially the conversation with Mary, you have so much, just as far as like emotion and so much care, we see in chapter 11 and verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And that's why you know, we talk about them being Jesus's friends, but they're probably some of Jesus's closest friends among mm-hmm. those who would be like his disciples or his apostles. Uh, you have throughout this section, people who are crying. You have people who are deeply moved like Jesus. Multiple times it talks about that. Verse 33 and verse 38, it talks about how Jesus wept in verse 35. This is a very, you know, heavy grief, mourning, sorrow, mm-hmm. loss scenario. And so when Jesus gets to the tomb, we see that he asks, you know, where is Lazarus? Where have you laid him in verse 34? And Mary says, Lord, come and see. You have this great statement that, you know, it's the shortest verse in the Bible, you know, a very short sentence even. You have an entire thought wrapped up and it just says, Jesus wept. You think about that love that Jesus has for these people, for Mary, for Martha, for them to have lost their brother, for Lazarus, and for just what he had has faced and gone through being sick and then dying of that sickness. And it starts with the point of the fact that Jesus is a man who understands what it means to be human. That's not to deny his deity at all, which John definitely supports, but John is also supporting the fact that Jesus is, you know, the one who came and took on flesh, right? Isn't that a big point of chapter one? Jesus later is going to 
eat with people here. He cries. He has emotions. You might think about for a moment, maybe not necessarily the main point of this, but it's totally normal and acceptable to weep over the loss of loved ones. You know, as Christians, we need to be careful sometimes. I don't want to get too far on this, but the the idea of hey, don't cry because there's going to be a resurrection. You know, Paul mm-hmm. talks about how you know, don't be sad because we have hope. I don't think that's saying that we you know don't be sad at all. I think we right. still mourn the loss and the separation. But we can mourn the loss of separation and have that hope of getting to see them in the resurrection one day, those who are our loved ones who have also been saved by the blood of Jesus. Yeah, I think your, your point is well taken. I think if I remember right there in First Thessalonians, Paul says, don't grieve as those who have no hope. So I think what he's saying there is the, the kind of grief that Christians have for the loss of other Christians is not the same kind of grief. We may still grieve, but it's not a hopeless grief. Right. And, uh, and so, right, I think, I think this is a, a good application to think about. When we go through grief and loss, it, it's appropriate for us to feel grief over that. Absolutely. And as we think about that scene of Jesus weeping, and probably him, in a sense, even grieving and mourning over his friend's death, even though he knows what he's about to do, there's still that, all of that tied within it. But I think along with that, you could see the point also being made that Jesus is weeping at the situation that sin has caused. Now, that's mm-hmm. not saying that Lazarus sinned and so he died, but right. think about what Jesus has noticed his creation. Remember, Jesus is the creator of mankind, of this world. And so for millennia, Jesus has been watching his creation have to face physical death because of the consequence of sin. You know, originally, when God made man from the dust and he you know, clothed him with flesh and all of that, the intention was that we're going to dwell together forever. But man had the opportunity to choose and chose to try to take wisdom for themselves and rebel against God. And so for thousands and thousands of years, Jesus has been watching person after person after person have to go through physical death. And just think about what that does to to some. I mean, it's hard to describe because, you know, we're talking about Jesus' humanity, but also we're talking about Jesus' deity yeah. within the same sentence or with the same thought right. or idea. But hopefully we can see some of that there, or some of each of those points. Jesus grieving, but also Jesus just grieving the situation that sin has caused. And so from Jesus weeping there at the tomb, we get some crowd response. You know, it's not just Mary and Martha who are there with him, but... In verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. Look how much he cared for his friend. There's this other part of the crowd, though, in verse 37. And I don't really know what this people, like, what jerks? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's a harsh way to say that. But what is their point here? They, They say, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? This guy who healed the paralyzed man or opened the eyes of the blind man or who walked on water or multiplied loaves and fish or all the signs he's done and other miracles that even outside of what John records. I mean, he could have saved this man if only he were here. You know, it, it seems like a, just a, oh, how sad that Jesus wasn't here to do this. Yeah, and it seems like, again, they recognize that Jesus could have, you know, healed him. But again, nobody seems to 
think, oh, well, Jesus is here. He can raise him from the dead. That's not the thought that crosses anybody's mind. And so here's a hopeless, quote and unquote, hopeless situation where nobody imagines that Jesus can actually fix this, but Jesus is going to do exactly that. And so I think it just, again, reiterates the point. Nobody expected this to happen. I mean, why, why would they? Yeah, so we have these seven verses that actually records the sign. There's lots of buildup leading to the sign, lots of stuff after the sign we'll get to as well. And with this sign, John is just looking to give us the facts. I mean, the facts are mm-hmm. that, as we've mentioned, Lazarus has been buried in a cave with a stone rolled over the front. He's been dead for four days now. I mean, Jesus has raised other people, and this is... Jeff O'Rear, maybe you relate some to this. I don't think that this is how it's supposed to be interpreted or necessarily thought about. But, you know, some of those other times that Jesus has healed other people or Jesus has raised other people from the dead, it's kind of like they just died. You know, we go there. And the implication is that they're dead and Jesus brings them back to life. And John really is going to lean into the fact here. It's been, like we've mentioned, four days. Emerson's mentioned already what Martha says when Jesus says, roll away the stone, you know, what happens after a person dies, their body starts to decompose, and decomposition mm-hmm. is not a pleasant, you know, aroma experience. <laughs> uh, as the right. King James says, and paraphrases that, Lord, he stinketh. He's been dead for four <laughs> days. And Jesus says, no, roll away the stone. He tells them, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So Jesus expresses a prayer to the Father, thanking him for this opportunity to prove that he has really been sent by him to do his works for people to see that. And he calls Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out, you know, bound as you would expect a dead person to be. So many questions here, you know. What did Lazarus experience for those four days being dead? What is it like to be dead for four days and all of a sudden to have physical consciousness and body again? And, you know, was he sore or tired or what's everybody else? So many things, but but that's not important. John gives us the facts of the sign and see that Jesus, with the power of his voice and the power that has been given him by the Father and the power of the Father, calls a man back from the dead. And so obviously that's going to lead to some fallout. I mean, mm-hmm. Jesus' other signs, when he heals people on the Sabbath, like in chapter 5 or in chapter 9, that already has its own level of fallout. And as we talked about, it's not to say that this is like a more impressive, I mean, hey, I can't turn water to wine any easier than I can raise somebody from the dead, or I can't walk on water or multiply loaves and fish. These are all impressive displays of the power of God. But boy, what do you do? How do you respond after seeing someone raise someone else from the dead? Right. Yeah. And as you said, I mean, this is certainly uh, an impressive sign that it defies explanation um, and, and so the response, we've, we've kind of come to expect this already, that some people are going to believe and some people aren't. That's the way it's gone so far. But it seems like after this sign, that wedge between those two groups just gets driven even further. So in verse 45, it says, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But in verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, I don't know what their motives are here. I think we could probably get off into a lot of speculation about that. But I wonder if if it's almost like they're turning Jesus in. They're they're hostile to Jesus and they, they're like telling on Jesus, tattling on him. 
And so what they try to do is, is not only kill Jesus, but they're going to want to kill Lazarus too. I mean, the Pharisees at times have mentioned and said, hey, if you see Jesus, let us know so we can do something about it. So mm-hmm. at other times, some people have said, you know, I don't feel comfortable doing that because this guy's obviously doing some pretty miraculous things or some pretty, you know, crazy signs that I don't want to get in the way if they could be really from God. But maybe there are some people who are on board with the Pharisees and are like, hey, there's Jesus, time to go let mm-hmm. him know. And so what what I do find really remarkable here is that whether they believed or didn't believe, not a single person tried to deny the miracle because how could they? Here right. is a very visible, tangible representation of the glory of God. No one could argue with the fact that Lazarus was dead. No one can argue the fact that he he is now living and walking and talking and eating with us. Everybody could see him. And so they couldn't deny the miracle. So what the Pharisees and the Sadducees start to do at this point is, okay, we've got to stop this. We've tried to nip this in the bud and we've not had an opportunity. Jesus has eluded our grasp, but we have got to do something. And so in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do? If we let him continue this, everybody's going to believe in him. And that leads to Caiaphas, the high priest, standing up and making a case for finally getting rid of Jesus. This is really fascinating when you think about what he says and what is actually going on here. Mm -hmm. So he says, if we let Jesus go on, then the Romans will come. They'll take away our place in our nation. And so what he's concerned about is politics, national security, and that really kind of underscores their motives all along. They're not really concerned about following God, listening to the truth, observing the signs, looking at the evidence, and looking for the true Messiah, as Moses had pointed toward Jesus coming. They're not really concerned about that. Their main concern is their position, their power, but... (laughs) I think what really is highlighted here is that there's a lot of bigger problems than the Romans coming in. The bigger problem is sin and unbelief and hard hearts like these Pharisees. So what he proposes is, well, it's better to kill one troublemaker than for the entire nation to be destroyed. So he says, I mean, on one level, that makes logical sense. If there's a troublemaker, let's get rid of him. Let's spare ourselves. The problem is this troublemaker isn't just anybody. His is the son of God. Yeah. And so let's kill Jesus and spare the nation was, is his proposal. Now, what's really interesting is in verse 51, it says, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. On one level, he, he recognized Jesus has to die to spare the people. But on another level, he had no idea that he was actually stating the significance and the purpose of Jesus's death was for the people. And not just for the Jewish nation, John makes the point in verse 52, not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. And I think there he's talking about the Gentiles that we referenced in chapter 10, the other sheep that are not of this fold. Mm -hmm. Um, And in chapter 12, we'll get to that next week, but there's some Greeks that come up to worship in, in Jerusalem non-Jewish people, and they say, we want to see Jesus. And it's at that moment that Jesus says, my hour has come. And so Jesus is, it has his mind set on 
on sacrificing himself for all the people, Jew and Gentile. And so what I find really interesting here is that Caiaphas planned Jesus' death as a political maneuver to save the Jewish people from the Romans. But what's really going on is that God planned Jesus' death as a spiritual maneuver to save all people from sin. So when we get there and we read about Jesus' death, let's read it through God's eyes and his perspective. What is he doing? What is Jesus doing? That's what he's been driving at all along. Jesus' hour is approaching. He is ready to lay down his life for his people, for his sheep. So we want to make just a couple of observations here in our conclusion. Uh, some things about some running themes in the book of John, some things about obedience before we get to our so what and our challenge. Uh, first of all, think about how in this chapter we've seen the themes of belief and light and life all talked about. I mean, belief is mentioned in verse 15, verse 26, and verse 40. And again, thinking about how important that is, all the times we've been referring to and plugging John 20, 30, and 31, this sign, and Jesus very specifically mentions at times related to this sign, is to get us to believe in the glory of God and what God's plan is to save us from our sins, and that being the the sacrifice and the example of Jesus Christ. We've mentioned in chapter 1 how there's the themes of light and dark and life and death as well. In verse 9 and verse 10, you see that discussion of light and dark continuing to play, something that's going to come up again, like we mentioned even in John's epistles as well, to remember how important that theme is and what that's talking about. It's not just talking about you know flipping a switch on or off. We're talking more about spiritual light and Mm -hmm. darkness, as well as spiritual life and death. It's true that Jesus did give physical life to the universe and creation as Jesus is the one behind creation, but really in verse 4 and verse 13, especially verse 25 and verse 26, see the themes of life and death that are brought up in this chapter as well. I think there's an important application to take from this chapter when you think about all of that, and especially Jesus' question to Martha in verse 26, do you believe this? Jesus is very direct there. He is really hitting on the main point of the, the gospel. But what he asks is not, do you understand all of this? Do you understand absolutely what's going on? Because she obviously doesn't understand. What he asks is, do you believe this? Do you trust me? And she obviously did. Now, her faith would continue to need to grow. But I think the application is, what does faith mean practically? If you trust Jesus, you will obey what he says, even when you don't understand it. And that's the point he makes to Martha when he comes to the tomb, remove the stone. Again, it's Martha that says, you don't want to do that. Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) And Jesus says, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So if he says, remove the stone, remove the stone. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't understand why or the purpose behind it, you said you trust him. Now do what he says. And I think that's an important application. Faith isn't a mental ascent, uh, just an intellectual thing. It's a very practical thing. It calls upon us to do what Jesus says because we trust in him. And that leads us to really our so what. Why does this chapter matter? Obviously it does, because this is a big, big chapter in John. But as You've already pointed out the point of this sign was to show the unmistakable glory of God through Jesus. 
And that's what Jesus led up to in verse 4, very beginning of the chapter. This is for the glory of God. This is what he ends with in verse 40. Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? We need to realize that Jesus wasn't just another prophet or a good teacher, but God is clearly making himself known as God made man. And if we miss that main point, then we've missed the whole point of this chapter and the, the rest of the Gospel of John. So if we haven't gotten the point yet that Jesus is God, then this really asserts that. We need to recognize who Jesus really is. So our challenge this week, kind of with this big chapter, it's an amazing chapter about all the things that are happening. We really want you to reflect and respond and record the following questions and your answers. Number one, do you believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Um, if you're tuning in with this podcast and you've been following along through this John series especially, that's probably a very easy yes or no question, and you could just write that down. But the point of the reflection part in that, and as the responding and recording, is to think, okay, but how does that affect my life? What does that mean for me and how I relate then to Jesus or how I live? on a daily basis, and also what does that mean for my life eternally? You know, do I look for that eternal life if I truly understand and realize that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Reflect on those, record your answers somewhere in a notebook or a note on your phone, and dwell on that thought this week or whenever you listen to this episode. Thank you for tuning in to Working with the Word today. Next week, we'll wrap up this crisis section in John chapter 12 by talking about Jesus' hour and what is to come. Until then, if there are questions or topics or books of the Bible you'd like us to cover in future episodes, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. That's what He means when He says that He who believe... Blah, blah.